This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, is Boris Johnson planning to tear up Britain's deal with the EU? Plus, does the possible overturning of Roe v Wade stand up to constitutional scrutiny? And finally, is Eton College going through an awakening? First up, James Forsyth writes in his Spectator cover story this week that Boris Johnson plans to reignite the Brexit voter base by taking on the EU again over Northern Ireland. He joins me now, along with Dennis Staunton, the London editor of the Irish Times, who writes in this week's magazine about how Sinn Féin has benefited from the DUP's collapsing support. James, in your cover piece this week, you write about proposed government legislation to tear up post-Brexit plans in Northern Ireland. Obviously, this is a subject with a lot of complicated technicalities, but could you give a brief summary of the government's plans for our listeners? So, to get a withdrawal agreement, the UK government agreed to the protocol. Boris Johnson agreed to it, fought the 2019 election on that deal, which included that, won a large majority. What that deal does is essentially create a regulatory border in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland so that you can maintain an open border on the island of Ireland so you don't need to go back to having kind of border checks. And the reason you need that regulatory border in the Irish Sea is so that you don't have goods being produced in Great Britain that aren't compliant with EU rules and regulations going into Northern Ireland and going then from Northern Ireland into Ireland and into the EU. Boris Johnson has, almost from the moment he won that majority, chafed against this deal. Um, In uh, autumn 2020, he suggested through the Internal Market Bill rewriting it, uh, something that Brandon Lewis said was a specific and limited breach of international law. In the end, the negotiations made enough progress that that didn't happen. Then, since the Brexit deal came in in uh, 2021, what you have seen is that the protocol got off to the worst possible start. Lots of firms looked at it, saw that it was complicated and just decided not to serve the Northern Irish market. That created a lot of unionist unhappiness. There have been various grace periods you know, and things like that, but there are still checks going on. The DUP have suffered a big political price in Northern Ireland for this because if you remember, right up until they agreed the protocol, the DUP were backing Boris Johnson. They rejected Theresa May's deal. They welcomed into their conference and then this to them. And the TUV have outflanked them saying that, you know, the protocol is, is a precursor to, to kind of an all-Ireland economy, which is a precursor to unification. And that is the reason why in this week's elections, Sinn Féin are expected to top the poll because the unionist vote is, is split three ways. The government said, the UK government said, look, you can't get the devolved institutions in Northern Ireland up and running until you deal with unionist concerns over the protocol. And the protocol is making it very hard to govern the country. Think of the fact that you can't take VAT off domestic fuel because that measure would not apply in Northern Ireland. So they are proposing a bill that sounds anodyne. It basically says the government will legislate to protect the Good Friday Belfast Good Friday Agreement in its entirety. But what that essentially means is that if they can't get what they want out of the EU and they don't have very much hope that they can, they are prepared to unilaterally override parts of the protocol. 
Dennis, you write about Sinn Féin's popularity in Northern Ireland for this week's magazine. What do you think is behind this? Has the Northern Ireland protocol been a factor for voters? And, and do you perhaps agree with James's analysis that the DUP have paid a political price for Brexit? Yeah, the DUP have paid a price not just for Brexit, but for their role in it, for their failure to prevent Boris Johnson from signing up to the protocol, and uh, and for their general ineffectual uh, approach to uh, to everything they've done with relation to Brexit. And so when we talk about Sinn Féin doing well, if Sinn Féin does emerge as the biggest party, it won't be that they have expanded their vote. It is just that the DUP will have lost votes and parties to do with the split in unionism, but also to do with an awful lot of people who are in favour of uh, being part of the United Kingdom, not actually voting for unionist parties. They're voting for other parties like Alliance. And so this um, this whole dispute over the protocol, questions about the constitution, about the protocol, about having a border poll for a united Ireland, these tend to be the issues that parties like Sinn Féin like to talk about and parties like the DUP like to talk about. But most people in Northern Ireland don't want to talk about these things at all. They want to talk about the things that everybody talks about here. So in terms of things like the cost of living crisis, which you mentioned in your piece is a a big factor for Northern Irish voters, have the reality of border checks played a part on that crisis? That's an interesting question, and it's not quite clear. In the leaders' debate on the BBC on Tuesday evening, uh, Geoffrey Donaldson waved a piece of paper where he was talking about how there were some figures saying that uh, the protocol was adding to the cost of various goods. And it probably is adding some cost because there are new procedures, and so that probably does add some cost. But what's not clear is just how much uh, the protocol or the new t- or these checks are to blame for increases in prices. And certainly, obviously, given that the cost of living crisis is happening, not just in Northern Ireland or in the United Kingdom, Kingdom, but elsewhere in Europe as well. It's clear that the protocol isn't the main cause behind this. And James, uh, Boris Johnson has tried to change the Northern Ireland agreements unilaterally before. Uh, you mentioned the move by which Brandon Lewis, his, his Northern Ireland secretary, described at the time as breaking international law in a very specific and limited way. Is the situation different this time? Yes, because the government will say, and I, I'm, I am sure that the, the, the EU will dispute this, but the government will say that its changes are in compliance with international law. Now, the Attorney General, Suella Bregman, has not yet delivered her verdict. But ministers are very convinced that they, it is international law compliant because they are moving to protect the pre-existing international agreement, the Good Friday Agreement. And their argument will be that the Good Friday Agreement has three uh, strands in it, the devolved institutions in Northern Ireland. And they say, look, you can't, the DUP quit the executive in February because of the protocol, and you can't get the executive up and running again until the DUP have had uh, their concerns on the protocol assuaged. There's no North-South cooperation because there is no executive and the DUP are boycotting the meetings. That's another strand gone. And the whole issue with the protocol is what it does to East-West relations. So they will argue that because they are moving to protect the pre-existing international agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, they, these unilateral changes are not a breach of international law. Dennis, what do you think the unionist reaction will be in Northern Ireland to this bill? Will an attempt to ditch the protocol have the support of the unionist parties? I think it will certainly have the support of the DUP. Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, has said that he won't bring his party back into government in Northern Ireland until the protocol is fixed. And it may be that this uh, stratagem by the government will be enough to persuade him to go back in. 
The problem that the unions have, though, is that the government can announce this in the Queen's speech, they can introduce the legislation, but the legislation that James is describing, all it does is that it gives ministers the power to do something. The decision to actually exercise that power is something else. And the government has a, a record of not following through with these things. So it could be that this bill, if it's introduced, is actually just, as the uh, internal market bill was before, just a way really of trying to influence the negotiations. And it may be that it either doesn't work or it works to the extent that it pleases the government enough, but it doesn't please the unionists enough. So I think that the unionists, uh, you know, they always have to build in some expectation of being let down. And But it may be just be that in the short term it'll do the trick for the DUP. And James, how will Brussels respond to the introduction of the bill? Well, uh, Dennis would be more expert on that than me. But when you talk to people on, on the EU side, they say that their initial reaction to the Queen's speech is going to be very muted. They take the view that lots of things are said in the Queen's speech don't necessarily happen. And also there's a view that, you know, if Boris Johnson wants to pick a fight with the EU to bolster his survival chances, you know, why should they be dragged into that? I think the EU, things will only get serious if the bill is actually introduced. I think at that point, what people on the EU side say is, well, look, you know, all these lawsuits against the UK for not enforcing the protocol, you know, which are currently frozen, they will start to proceed again. And, you know, and also things that the UK wants, like acceding to the horizon, the EU scientific research programme, you know, you can forget about that. Where things get really serious is if a bill becomes law and the government starts doing stuff. And uh, at that point, the EU say, you know, the nuclear option of targeting British goods, tariff wars, all those things are a possibility. I think on the UK side, there is a sense that the EU had lined all the member states up for Article 16, but not for this. And the UK side, now we have heard this before, and the EU side, the UK side has misread the ability to drive wedges into the EU. But I think there is a view on the UK side that at this particular geopolitical moment, with the UK doing so much on Ukraine, moving to bolster NATO's eastern flank, you know, the idea of a full-on retaliation against the UK in a trade war would be less appealing to lots of EU member states. And so they would be more loath to agree that, that there will be more people inside the EU saying, look, let's keep this in proportion. The irony of this whole situation, though, is that, that, that you can see, I think, a bit of a sum of a way through, but if both sides would look at it afresh, which is, we've had these grace periods in, in place for the last two years. I think it is reasonable to say that they have not done huge damage to the integrity of a single market. So, you know, they could be made permanent, for example. And I think it is also clear that you're not going to get the devolved institutions in Northern Ireland up and running with the protocol in its current form. And so the idea of just kind of purely technical negotiations between the UK and the EU over how to implement the protocol aren't going to cut the mustard. And I think the, you can see it, it, it. The problem is there's just fundamentally no trust between the two sides. But if there was more trust, you could see how you could get to a landing zone. And James, why has Number 10 decided that now is the time to go after the protocol? Is this uh, Boris Johnson's bid for re-election, you know, reminding Leave supporters of his Brexit credentials? I, I think there are two things. I think one, on the one hand, you could argue this is Boris Johnson kind of once more trying to rally the forces of Leave to him, both within and without the Conservative Party. You know, That is that the moments of his maximum political potency have been when he has managed to do that. And it's certainly true that there are Brexiteer Tory MPs who are deeply frustrated with Boris Johnson, but will stay their hand against him because they think that only he is prepared to see this fight through and that no, no successor would be able to. I think the other more 
generous explanation is, is, is the situation on the ground in Northern Ireland and also the negotiating failure, which is, you know, you had David Frost, who took a very hard line, very confrontational approach. Then Liz Truss came in after David Frost resigned, you know, decided to try and do things in a much more consensual manner, you know, invited Seskovich to Chevening, you know, it was a kind of walk around the lake, let's all talk about this, you know, the, the, you know, the UK wants the EU to succeed, democratic allies, and, and the EU has offered Liz Truss far less than it offered David Frost in October. And I think that has created a view on the UK side that, you know, hardball tactics are what work if you try and play nicely i think the eu has made a massive strategic error by not offering more to trust and to saying to the british side look your foreign secretary came to the table tried to treat this as part of the broader relationship tried to work on it diplomatically and so we were prepared to offer her more than we were prepared to offer to your hardball tactics. I mean, they have created a sense in the British system that it is this kind of hardballism and, and, and threats and, 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 you know, putting legislation on the table that, that gets results. And Dennis, finally, could all this play into the hands of Sinn Féin? Yes, I think before I get to Sinn Féin, if I may, I just would say that I think that if the British government thinks that it's got a better chance with this than it had with Article 16, I think the government is miscalculating. I think, as James said, the European Commission and the member states were all lined up in terms of what their retaliation was going to be if Britain triggered Article 16. They're still lined up. And they regard this as more aggressive and more serious than Article 16 because it, uh, Article 16 is a relatively limited instrument. And in the treaty. And it's within the treaty. Whereas this is an entirely unilateral action. I think also it's going to be a problem if they think they're going to drive a wedge between, say, these countries that have been uh, you know, on the front line uh, in Ukraine as well, along with Britain, these countries like Poland and the Baltic states. Because the fact is that the European Union is a constant negotiation. And these countries, they need to keep negotiating with their European partners about all kinds of different things. And they will compartmentalise the whole issue of defence and these defence alliances. This is a very real thing, this cooperation on Ukraine. It's very important to those countries and to Britain. But uh, I, I, I think it's very unlikely that they're going to suddenly stand up and try to block what is effectively the European policy. And the final thing I'd just say about this is that if you look at it from the European point of view, this is a treaty which the European Union negotiated with the United Kingdom. David Frost said to the policy exchange last week, it was negotiated under duress when the United Kingdom was not a fully sovereign state. That sounds simply bonkers in Europe. It simply is not the way they see it. And so when Olaf Scholz was over here in Downing Street, the Chancellor of Germany, to talk to Boris Johnson, it was quite clear that when Boris Johnson raised this with him, he just said this, it's simply out of the question. There's no quarter, I think, going to be given on this. And I do think that uh, if, if the United Kingdom goes down this road, that it will eventually, if they actually do uh, follow through on all of this, it will lead to a trade war and it could lead simply to the suspension of the trade agreement altogether. Well, Dennis and James, thank you very much indeed. Next up, Douglas Murray has written in his column this week about America's abortion debate in the wake of the leaked draft of a Supreme Court opinion set to overturn the 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade. He joins us now, along with our economics editor, Kate Andrews. Douglas, and you're in the States at the moment, in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. What has the reaction been in the States to this news? Well, there are two things. The first is, and it shouldn't be passed over too fast, the first thing is understandable outrage from a portion of the country about the leak. 
it's inevitable that's going to be overtaken by other things and other outrages. But the leak of this draft is unprecedented. It's itself outrageous that anybody could preemptively leak a draft from the US Supreme Court is unheard of, is very troubling, and it basically makes this a political issue before it even becomes a political issue. And, you know, there are serious questions about how on earth this could have happened, how anybody could have got access to this and let them leak it. So that's the first thing, uh, and that which there is outrage over. Obviously, secondly, there is outrage over the possibility that what, what Alito has written could end up being the judgment of the Supreme Court, which again, I stress at the moment, it is not. But obviously now everybody who is most sensitive in America about Roe v. Wade is up in arms. There were protests at the Supreme Court within minutes of this story breaking on Politico of the leak coming out. And and, and there is, I think, a definite feeling that we've got to buckle up and gear up because this is going to be a really messy, dirty, ugly fight. And in relation to the outrage over the leak, which you which you just mentioned, I mean, I think that the, the fact it was leaked alone seems to suggest a, a controversy within the institution of the Supreme Court. Do you think that the early leak could lead to potential large changes to the, to the wording or perhaps even changes to some of the justices' votes? Well, it'd be outrageous if that was the case, because it would give it would give effectively a leaker's veto on Supreme Court decisions, which is, is, is I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be possible in, to tolerate that in any democracy. The, the, the fact is, is that the, clearly that's why it's been leaked, probably a clerk at the court or somebody who has done it. But yes, there's now going to be unbelievable pressure on all of the justices. And 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 yes, that that is why one of the reasons why people are so outraged about about this that 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 political oppression is going to be applied to a decision which itself will be interpreted as highly political. Well, Kate, on on the subject of the the political nature of it all, I mean, the the main thrust of the leaked opinion seems to be that abortion is not ratifiable as legal under the Constitution, and so in theory, I suppose that means that someone could, in principle, be in favour of, of abortion but against the Roe versus Wade judgment. But do you think that actually, in reality, the Supreme Court is engaging in a political interpretation of the Constitution? They're all being political on one level, Will, in the sense that they all take a perspective on whether or not they have a strict or loose constructionist opinion of the Constitution. Strict would mean a very narrow interpretation, that the document should be laid out and you should adhere to it almost exactly as it was written, loose being you take precedent, historical context into account, you think of it as a living, breathing document, and you make updates accordingly. And I I think that is a political issue, and it's why the court has been politicized, and why who is president and who gets to appoint the next Supreme Court justice always matters in an election. But it, it could certainly be the case that a judge might take, say, a strict take on the Constitution, but personally have different views. And I think That is somewhat acknowledged in the leaked judgment that we've seen, where it reads that abortion presents a profound moral question. 
they don't then go on to try to take one side or the other because that's not the court's job. The court's job is to interpret the constitution. And we've seen this with emotive, but not as emotive topics in the past, things like Obamacare, where Justice Roberts actually upheld Obamacare, basically saying that the court's job is to decide whether or not something can be done in the law, not to make a judgment about legislation and what politicians are saying and doing. So, you know, you, you could have those scenarios, but I think that the bigger question being raised in America right now is even if from a very principled perspective, you can make these strict or loose interpretations of the Constitution, what does it mean in practice? And I think this is going to be an issue for the American right, actually, because the question of Roe v. Wade being overturned has not been active for a long time. People talk about it, but nobody really saw it happening. And so the right could very often say, well, look, even if it were overturned, don't worry. It just goes back to the states. It doesn't mean abortion is illegal, and the states will get to decide what they what they do or don't do. Now, with this big leak, even in the past 24 hours, people are you know going through very carefully what states have prepared to do in the case of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And you have over a dozen states that have already implemented something called a, a trigger ban, which means that if Roe v. Wade were to ever be overturned, their state policy comes in almost immediately. And in most of these states where they've brought in this trigger ban, you see nearly a full ban on abortion in almost all circumstances. So that reality is hitting hard. And I think you do have to separate it from the court's job. You have to understand that the court isn't there to make a moral judgment about abortion, but it could have a very practical impact on on the lives of women throughout the country. And and that is fundamentally the sticking point. Douglas, what do you make of Kate's point there that, that uh, the news this week could actually be a problem for the American Right. And how do you think that the reigniting of the abortion debate might affect particularly the midterms in November? Well, it's certainly, Kate's completely right, it certainly could affect the American right. It could affect the American left as well. It's a very unknown thing that we're in at the moment. I mean, it's perfectly possible that, as I say in my piece this week, that, I mean, elements of the right are going to do the same thing as elements of the left and essentially that worst of all things in politics tried to hurt their opponents. And I think you've already seen that. It's perfectly possible that the right oversteps and that this gal, that this perception that this is a long-term right-wing sort of march through an institution that was always gearing up for this will motivate the democratic base in the midterms. That's possible, but equally it's possible that Democrats themselves overstep or overreach on this, overstate the case, there are people like, I, I give the example in the piece of the Attorney General in New York, who was giving a public speech yesterday in which she she talked of her pride in going into the abortion clinic when she had her abortion. And it's possible that that, that sort of language from the fringes of the Democratic Party, which doesn't regard abortion as a, a sad right that is that is justifiable in, in sad and sometimes necessary circumstances, but rather views it as a sort of a great thing, will put off the significant chunk of America, and I, I, I didn't get into the stats of this in my piece, but the stats on it are really interesting. You know, the number of people in America who want an outright ban on abortion across the country are a distinct minority. Most Americans are, are, believe that abortion is permissible and necessary in certain circumstances and are queasy about second and third trimester abortions, very queasy about that, but do not want an outright ban. Now, it's possible, as I say, that the Democrats overstate their case 
and end up doing that thing that some activists have already been doing and actually put off some of the people they need to have on their side, which is that moderate middle that doesn't like abortion, may be unclear about Roe v. Wade, and believes that the Democrats are in the process of overstepping. I mean, we just don't know because, as I say, this this simmering culture in America has just been in the process of turned up to boiling point, and both sides could go wrong. Kate, since the leak, President Joe Biden has made a statement in which he said, Roe has been the law of the land for almost 50 years, and basic fairness and the stability of our law demand that it not be overturned. What did you think about Biden's statement overall? I was impressed by Joe Biden's statement. And I will admit that a major reason I was impressed is because I was thinking about how his Democrat and Republican predecessor might have responded to this. And I was taken back to, I think it was the State of the Union address in 2010, where former President Barack Obama sort of lectured the Supreme Court, told them off, made some pretty, in political terms anyway, in historical terms, aggressive comments towards the judges about his upcoming health care plans and sort of saying to them, you know, you need to get in line. And it was deeply inappropriate. Then, of course, you have Donald Trump, who has never pulled punches and uh, said quite a few things about the Supreme Court, especially when they refused to overturn Joe Biden's credible election win at the end of 2020. And here you have a statement from Joe Biden, which will frustrate people on the pro-life side. No doubt Biden's making very clear that he is pro-choice, but the statement is very carefully crafted. It doesn't go after the court. It doesn't suggest that the court is the problem. He's not threatening the institution for a possible decision they might make. He's talking about what he will do with the powers that he has as president of the United States from a legislative perspective to try to protect a woman's right to an abortion. And I I thought, wow, you know, I've, I voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And gosh, have I been disappointed many times during his presidency so far, which I expected to be. But it was a little glimpse of the original reasons that I did vote for him, just thinking in these really difficult situations, you know, abortion is one of the most electrifying debates mm-hmm. in America still and has been for decades. This is the kind of response I want for, from the president, one that I think quite rightly acknowledges that to row back the right to access an abortion, especially full stop, would be to row back on women's rights, but also one that doesn't feel the need to tear down American institutions mm. in order to make, I think, an important political point. And, and Douglas, finally, one of the things that you mentioned in your piece is that unlike in America, the abortion debate in Britain is essentially over. Why do you think that is? And do you think that given Britain's strong cultural ties to America, that the possible overturning of Roe versus Wade could reignite the abortion debate over here? I think it could. I think that it's a reminder that, as I say in the piece, um, most outsiders don't understand why America is so obsessed with abortion. But personally, I think that it's a demonstration that America still cares deeply about some deep moral issues. And abortion it recognises as a country, is a deep moral issue. There's a chance, certainly, that in the UK people will return to this. I don't think in any meaningful way, as I say in the piece, there are some groups in the UK, notably Catholics, who have strong views on this. But most of the public in, in Britain have come to accept abortion 
all of the downsides included, all of the moral ickiness included in, in, in you know, having 10 times more abortions now than when the laws were passed in the 60s. But they've, 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 they, they pass that over because the alternative they see is worse. And that's a conclusion that Britain, like other countries in Europe, I think has come to. I think it's unlikely to be unsettled. And, you know, we'll see if, if it is in the US. We'll see if this ends up being a state-by-state state decision. If it is, there's one thing I should add, which is it would, it would further exacerbate the effective fragmentation of America into two sides, red states, blue states, with their own uh, histories, their own interpretations of recent histories, their own cultures, their own norms. I, I obviously think that would be a sad thing for America, but this is definitely something that will exacerbate that trend. Well, Douglas and Kate, thank you very much indeed. And finally... In this week's magazine, The Spectator's diary editor, James Heal, turns his attention to Eton College, which he says is having an uncharacteristic identity crisis. James joins me now to talk about the direction of the school, along with The Spectator's literary editor and Old Etonian, Sam Leith. James, you write in The Spectator this week about how a battle is being waged for Eton's soul, as you put it. What is going on? Well, I think what's been happening at Eton is a microcosm for the wider independent sector, which is that how do you have these traditional institutions, in Eton's case with you know, 600 years of history behind them, trying to modernise the 21st century, and how do you go about doing that? And I think it's definitely suffered because of the consequence of that. So a number of staff certainly have internal opposition to what's been going on under the uh, headmaster uh, Simon Henderson and I think that we've seen this long-running battle in in the press lots of leaks public attacks um, about what's been happening and now that's playing out there's a national angle as well because the provost of Eton is coming up for grabs and uh, that is a crown appointment so there's a bit of jockeying going on in Whitehall uh, behind the scenes about who will be the person who who becomes the next provost and have a role in Eton's future. And uh, one source that you you quote in the piece says that while these uh, changes are being enacted the source says that the boys feel that they are left as guardians, not only of the institution's characteristics, but also its processes. Is the idea of a traditionalist boys versus radical staff, is that a bit of an oversimplification or is that what... Uh, well, it, was, it was rather glorious. Uh, TikTok last week was, was flooded with these videos of the legget. Uh, whereby a sort of protest where you saw all these um, young men taking to the streets in uh, their uh, in their finery in their Eton vest, and I think that there's certainly it would be it would be too much to sort of you know lump all of student opinion together, all the boys together, and say that there's a sort of homogenous view. But there certainly is a sort of backlash to what's been going on, and I think also not necessarily some of the things that have been happening are necessarily opposed by staff or students, but the way in which they've gone about it, I think um, Simon Hendricks, it's a very difficult job, obviously, being headmaster of Eton. You have such a profile. There's so much politics involved but I think the way in which the management has been going on has not been necessarily conducive I think that's alienated some of the boys certainly enough for them to have this legate and um, all the stories that have come out in the recent press. Sam you're an old Etonian from reading James's piece and from what he's just said do you think the school has changed since you were there? Well it sounds like it I certainly didn't know what a legate was and I'm very impressed that there's you know, some constitutional scholars at the school who were able to dig in and discover that this course of protest was available to them. I mean, yes, I think it's obviously, you know, it is changing. And, you know, I I think that a certain amount of 
awakening is to be applauded. I mean, what, what seems to me sort of interesting is that, at least in this account of it, the boys are the ones pushing for tradition and the, you know, at least the school leadership is the one attempting to modernise. And I think it was certainly when I was there, I mean, that was, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. So, you know, obviously that's quite a long time ago. It was would have been sort of the other way around. I mean, it is in the nature of adolescent boys to want to rebel. You know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? And back in the day, the way it was done was that the school was a bastion of tradition and conformity and ridiculous rules about, you know, the dress code and white triangles and, you know, whether you... Um, uh, oh God, I can't even remember. They capped a beak when you're passing in the street and, you know, there's all the sort of arcane Italian customs. And so, of course, the children would generally think, you know, I, I, I don't want any of this. I'm going to join the you know, Marxist debating group. I'm going to be an anarchist. I'm going to, you know. And so obviously children tended to hew left while the school hewed right or conservative, you know, kids would be progressive and the school would be conservative. So I think they've been very confused, probably, these children, and maybe driven into an uneasy alliance with their parents if the school authorities are suddenly the progressive force against which they're they're pushing, and they find themselves, oh, to go the other way, I'm, I'm going to have to stick up for beagling. <laughs> I, think, I think Sam makes a really good point, which is about the authority and what the prevailing orthodoxy is. And obviously it was different back when you were at the school there, Sam. And I think that it's natural to sort of push back in what the current regime is. And that has come in the form of the changes to management. Now, I think supporters of, of Henderson, the headmaster, would say they were long overdue. But the introduction of a new executive leadership team, I think has presented a new course to rail against, which is causing a lot of the issues. So I think you're right that it's about the broader theme of authority continuing. Although, as you say, it might lead to interesting new alliances about standing up for certain causes, uh, no matter how, um, to an outsider, unusual or eccentric they may seem. And Sam, you've written before that the most valuable thing that Eton taught you was an understanding of the way that power works in institutions. So is could it be said that this this new perhaps corporate management structure that James describes in the piece, is that not just the latest way that power works in modern institutions? Well, yeah. I mean, Eton obviously isn't a modern institution and, and hasn't been. That's kind of the point of it. That's why they all, you know, flounce around in 18th century outfits. I mean, I think it's probably, uh, it's certainly an innovation in the way it works if they are centralising. I obviously have no first-hand knowledge, really, of how that's working, but it would be... You know, I mean, the, the way I was interested in how it worked was more in how the, in my, in my day, the school management, the school authorities effectively learnt to co-opt the boys through the, the, these kind of prefect bodies, which, you know, or, essentially you, you'd become a prison trustee um, and all the most popular children would be kind of co-opted into it by, you know, being given little baubles like shiny waistcoats and then suddenly they'd stand on Windsor Bridge for three hours in the pissing rain waiting for, you know, to <laughs> prevent younger boys from going to the pub. So instead of being the focus of rebellion, they suddenly became the kind of proxy authority. I don't know how that would work now, the whole thing's in a Tower of Power management silo. But I imagine they're just trying to run the school now along much more corporate lines rather than the sort of traditional kind of Bayes Corridor, you know, ancient paintings glass of sherry kind of lines. And Sam, you often hear from people in public life who are very anti-Eton that 
Boris Johnson or perhaps even indeed David Cameron, that they have a, a, a callousness which can be blamed on their education. Do you think that is fair? I don't know. Um, I wouldn't say callousness. I mean, I think the charge is more not so much callousness as frivolousness. You know, that sense, and you know, talking to Simon Cooper about Oxford, which in a way is a kind of continuation of Eton on our podcast this week. He says essentially that the unseriousness of our generation of politicians, the sort of sense that politics is all a game, is nurtured in these institutions. I think there's something to that. And I think it, where it kind of intersects with callousness is probably just that sense which is nurtured in any institution which is as selective as Eton and as kind of socially homogenous for the most part. I mean, that's changing, but essentially it's still basically wealthy, wealthy people make up the vast majority of the parents and the children are made to feel very separate from their surroundings. You know, the, the traditional, I mean, for God, 50 or 100 years, the traditional interaction with the locals is has been crossing Windsor Bridge dressed like little Lord Fauntleroy and being you know, given a sock on the face by a local for being an entitled little git. And that kind of us and them feeling that sense of isolation from a wider community, the fact that, you know, most people, most children in Eton won't have had any direct experience of if you like, ordinary people, of poverty, of people from different class backgrounds from them, probably means that there is a less felt experience of the existence of these things and of these issues. So basically, I think, yeah, you are in a bit of a bubble. I mean, that's obviously the trade-off, um, I think. I mean, also the trade-off is that, you know, you will leave at the age of 18, you know, and your kneecaps will fall off the first time you're introduced to a girl. You know, you are in a, you're in a social bubble, you're in a sexual bubble, you're all those things. I guess the trade-off for that is that you get a very, very good education while you're there, but you've got some catching up to do in the real world. And if you never catch up, yeah, you might end up a little bit detached from the experiences of your countrymen. And James, finally, uh, where does Eton go from here? You say in your piece that, that the school is in the process of thinking about the next provost of the school. Could you explain for our listeners uh, why that role is significant and, and who might fill it? Well, we have a sort of runners and riders list of which is probably damn them all by naming by naming some of them. Um, but looking at who who could you know take over the running of the school, and I think that the list itself, so many of them, um, sort of diplomats, various grandees, you know, different houses of parliament, a couple of peers, so many of them went to Eton themselves, and that is a, basically a validation of the piece in itself, which is that all this stuff which you know, Stan was talking about, Eton being its own little world. And it can seem sort of somewhat comical, you know, when you talk about all the, the power structures involved with it and it is a bubble. But then you step away and you see the impact that it has on public life, um, producing, you know, 20 prime ministers, our current one himself. And this is the great irony is that Boris Johnson as prime minister um, may be expected, uh, obviously it's all done behind closed doors, but with the, with the involvement of a crown appointment, which the provost of Eton is. Um, so there's behind the scenes a lot of lobbying going on what's been happening. Some of the people we tip include for the provostship uh, Sir Mark Lyle Grant, former National Security Advisor, um, Sir Geoffrey Adams, former British Ambassador in Cairo. And I think that list of the great and the good is testament, first of all, to the power that Eton wields, but also um, its appeal. And that's very much why uh, we, we talk about it and discuss it the way we do. Well, uh, I, I, I vote for Lord Moore of Etchingham, who you didn't mention. I, th- <laughs> I, I think he'd be a prime candidate and it would keep him out of trouble.
<laughs> well, uh, Sam and James, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore, and do join us again next week.